0: You're listening to a podcast from IP. Hello and welcome to another podcast from Injury Prevention, an international peer-reviewed journal. My name is Brian Johnston. I'm the journal's editor-in-chief. In In our podcast, we highlight papers that we've published in the journal. These editor's choice papers are always freely available online. You can visit us at injuryprevention.bmj.com and download a copy for yourself. You can also leave comments online and link to our searchable archive and to our blog. Today we're going to be discussing the paper, Risk and Protective Behaviors for Residential Carbon Monoxide Poisoning. This paper appears in our April 2013 issue. And to talk about the paper, I'm joined by two of the authors, Doug Rupert from the Health Communication Program at RTI International in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, and Scott Damon from the National Center for Environmental Health at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to you both.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: So um, your paper deals with carbon monoxide poisoning. Maybe you could start by telling us how big a problem this really is here in the United States and globally, if that's known.
2: Well, I'll go ahead from the, the CDC perspective. Um, first, it's important to remember that what we're talking about is, in this paper is unintentional, non-fire-related carbon monoxide poisoning. So we're excluding people who commit suicide with carbon monoxide or carbon monoxide that's associated with a house fire or something like that. And in the U.S., there's about 15,000 emergency room emergency department visits every year and about 500 deaths every year associated with this. And we figure that's probably an underestimate of the actual number of exposures because, of course, for one thing, it excludes people that don't go to the emergency
1: room. And and I would second that, and I think, you know, I – I wouldn't claim to be an expert on the international uh, CO poisonings, but I think what we do see, and Scott, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, you know, in other parts of the world you might see fewer um, poisonings caused by furnaces, but more poisonings caused by uh, biomass cookstoves, by generators, by other non-traditional heating and cooking sources, um, especially in countries that are, are less developed. Um, so it definitely is a problem internationally too.
2: And we do know from media reports that in uh, Britain there's a a fair-sized problem with uh, CO poisoning uh, and that it also is an industrial problem in many parts of the world as well.
0: So what was the research question that you set out to answer with this study?
1: Well, I think the major question we set out to answer was really why. Um, You know, why do individuals behave the way they do related to CO poisoning? Um, you know, it's an interesting scenario in that we know, we know why CO poisoning occurs, and we have a pretty good sense of the scenarios under which it occurs, um, you know, so much so that, you know, Scott and I have been working together for several years now, and when you'll see hurricanes or other major storms come in, you can expect a spike in CO poisonings caused by generators and other storm cleanup. So we know when they occur, um, and we know how they can be prevented um, in the case of residential poisonings with regular furnace maintenance, with proper installation of carbon monoxide alarms, Uh, and yet a lot of those prevention activities aren't happening. And there isn't really any evidence out there about why individuals don't adopt those protective behaviors or why they engage uh, in the risk behaviors, not having their furnace maintained, and so that was really the primary research question that we set out to answer, is why, why is it that individuals engage in these risk behaviors, and what is it that might um, encourage them or influence them to adopt protective behaviors that could prevent the poisoning?
2: Yeah, yeah. when we talk about um, the research question, remember this is really applied research. We really wanted to do this to be able to uh, design some sort of educational messaging to get people to adopt these protective behaviors.
0: And uh, to do this, you used a focus group methodology. Could you tell us why that was the correct design to answer the research question that you'd asked?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think given really the lack of of literature evidence around why people behave this way, uh, we wanted to start at the ground level. We didn't want to go in with any preconceived notions of, uh, of what the reasons might be. And so rather than starting with a cross-sectional survey or trying to get a sense of uh, you know, the magnitude of certain things on a very large sample, we wanted to go in and talk to individuals in depth, and we wanted to talk to them in a way that they could build on each other's ideas. Um, you know, so, for instance, one of the things that we found in the focus groups is, um, and I think a lot of folks find in focus groups, is that someone you know, would would start talking about the reason they didn't maintain their furnace. And that would um, generate an idea for another person to share. So just as an example, uh, you know, we learned that fear of expense in maintaining a furnace was a really big barrier for folks to do it um, and, and that led to a discussion of difficulty in finding a reputable repair professional or reputable technician and you know I think that's probably a category that we would not only well, speak for me it's a category I would not have come up with on my own um, and so I think in that sense having the focus groups was really an opportunity to let let the audience speak for themselves about what their reasons were for behaving the way they do um, and then a follow-on study or later research can really seek to, uh, you know, confirm those findings in a more generalizable way.
2: I would second what Doug said, especially about the um, people's concern about finding a reputable technician. How that translated to the efforts we're making now from CDC is trying to work with trade organizations that certify technicians to try and address that kind of question so people can see, oh, well, this is somebody I can trust that will service my furnace and not try to sell me something I don't need.
0: So you've already alluded to one of your findings. Um, what, else, what else did you learn from these focus groups? What were some of the main results?
1: I guess I would really highlight three, three big takeaway findings um, from the research. And the first was, as, as we started to talk about, that individuals like the idea of inspecting their furnace regularly, Uh, but they're unlikely to do it. And and some of the barriers to that are the fear of an an expensive inspection or an expensive repair, Um, you know, just like you might fear taking your car in when it's making a noise because, gosh, how much is that squeak going to cost me, Um, you know, when I finally get my car repaired. The difficulty of finding a reputable professional, and for some folks, the feeling that the DIY, the do-it-yourself way, is sufficient. I clean my filters. I vacuum up the dust that's probably fine to maintain a furnace. The second two findings that really stood out were about carbon monoxide alarms. And mm-hmm. I think we found that, that individuals were aware of alarms, like the idea of alarms, but they really weren't sure how to install them or where to place them. You know, One of the findings that really stood out to me was that individuals would often install alarms near a source of carbon monoxide, um, so near a furnace or uh, you know, in a kitchen near, near a stove. And, you know, not only would that lead to nuisance alarms in some cases, but you're also unlikely to hear that alarm when you're sleeping. And so individuals were really not aware, uh, you know, of the best practice of installing carbon monoxide alarms. Um, you know, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the current standard is one in every bedroom um, and one in, in a, on each floor. Um, and, and so individuals are not aware of that. And the final finding is that for those who do have CO alarms, they're really not maintaining them. Um, You know, again, the recommendation is that you replace the batteries in a CO alarm every six months. In the U.S., we talk about doing it with the time change in most states. When you change the clocks, you change the alarms or the batteries in your smoke alarm, and your carbon monoxide alarm. And we found that folks weren't doing that. Um, You know, what we found, and is supported a little bit by other research, is that folks change the batteries in their alarms when it beeps. Um, You know, 3 a.m., when the alarm starts beeping, that's when it's time to change the batteries. Um, and so I think those were, if I had to highlight three findings, those are the ones I would highlight.
2: And, again, from our CDC perspective, I agree with Doug, and the one we really, um, that I really came away with was the interest in alarms from a from a behavioral cost standpoint, that uh, people are hesitant to spend the money on servicing their furnace, um, but... The alarm is, for the most part, a once-every-seven-years-or-so expense of as little as $25, uh, plus, of course, the battery. Um, And you do have to replace the alarm every five, seven, ten years because the element in them degrades and they don't detect as well. But what we really came away with as, although that's secondary prevention, it's relying on something to warn you about uh, something that you haven't prevented from occurring, as opposed to primary prevention of furnace maintenance or placing a generator far enough away from the house so there's not an infiltration of CO, uh, it does seem from this this study and from other work we've done to be something that people are are more uh, amenable to doing.
0: So like any other methodology that you might have chosen, focus groups are going to have some limitations. How do you think these might impact the results that you've reported?
1: I think that's a great question. and much like the rationale for using focus groups as a methodology, I think Scott and I both see this study as the first step. You know, this mm-hmm. study was an opportunity to really lay the groundwork and say, Here, here's what we heard from real individuals in real life about why they behave the way they do. And I think, you know, the limitations of that um, are, are, number one, that it is a limited sample, um, a geographically limited as well as limited in size. and. It's very difficult to tell how generalizable those findings are. And so while I think this is a great first start about what those reasons might be, um, you know future studies should confirm these findings, confirm or, or refute, as the case may be, um, you know, with larger quantitative research to see if these reasons hold, if these behaviors and attitudes hold um, across a larger sample that is randomly selected and more representative of, of the population in the U.S. or, or in other countries. Um, and so I, I think that really is, you know, one of the limitations of the results is that this is the first step, um, but hopefully we've set the stage for for the next step um, to confirm to confirm these results.
2: And I would say um, there is some validation for this. An earlier step of the the work we did with RTI was that uh, Doug and others spoke to some of our key contacts in states and other places about what some of their experience have, has been some these are folks in state communication offices for the health departments and that informed how we developed some of the moderators guides for the focus groups but also looking back at what some they some of what they said we can see that we didn't find things that were inconsistent with what they talked about in addition um, CDC has been looking at the issue of carbon monoxide poisoning for a number of years and and we really didn't find things that were at great variance with what we've been learning for years. So we do want to do some more confirmatory work, but we also know that we did not, with these focus groups, find something that was far afield from what we already knew.
0: So with those caveats in mind, what do you think can be done, or perhaps what has already been done, with the findings that you report?
2: Well, the main thing that was done, and the, uh, as I said earlier, this was applied research, was uh, RTI worked with a company called Vanguard to develop a carbon monoxide poisoning prevention toolkit for CDC. Um, and the initial impetus of all this work was to provide tools for CDC to use, but also for state health departments, for local and city health departments, for uh, private groups to use to do um, co education, uh, and so that is the main thing that has um, been done with the findings to this point. And I should say that the toolkit can be accessed from our website, which is simply cdc.gov/co. Uh, and we have shared that with um, state public information officers in. The public health departments, and they have made use of varying parts of it depending on what their needs are. Uh, we've shared it with uh, non, other nonprofit groups like the Red Cross or the Emergency Managers Association. We have, we're in the process of sharing it with um, private industry that uh, either people who are the folks who f- service furnaces, or the other arm of this study was uh, looking at emergency-related poisonings from power outages and, and portable generators. So, sharing it with people who uh, sell portable generators.
1: Yeah, I would second uh, you know what Scott said. I think we were very excited about the toolkit um, as a way to apply this research and get it into the hands of state and local professionals who deal with carbon monoxide poisoning, um, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, And so the toolkit not only talks about, you know, some of the recommendations based on our research, but it also has customizable materials that state and local professionals can use and adapt for their area uh, to promote protective behaviors for CO poisoning. Um, And so hopefully that would be a great resource for those professionals to put to work.
0: So beyond the application then of, of your findings through this toolkit and its dissemination, what else do you see as next steps in, in our own understanding and prevention of carbon monoxide poisoning? And maybe in particular, are there gaps in our knowledge that injury research should be addressing?
2: I would say one of the, the biggest gaps is that everything we've been talking about is acute poisoning. Um, there is also, and it's much less researched, um, chronic poisoning, chronic low-level poisoning, which a lot of times is an occupational risk more than a uh, at-home risk Um, there's not a lot published and known about what is the effect of if you work in a factory with very low levels of co but you work there for 30 years that kind of thing another i guess we could call this a gap is that generators portable generators are becoming much more common in the u.s it has been the case that fixed appliances like especially home heating systems but things like a water heater or something like that have been the greatest risk factor because uh, even though they are a little more uh, regulated and controlled in terms of how much CO they are uh, releasing into a home, um, you're also using them a lot more than you would be a portable generator You 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 only hook up during a power outage. So as the generators become more common, that becomes more of a risk that we need to look at. And the final thing would be, in the U.S., there are um, more and more... States or cities or counties or whatever the entity might be, passing uh, regulations about requiring CO alarms in a home or in an apartment or in a hotel or something else, and knowing more of what kind of effect those are having on the rates of CO poisoning will be important for us.
1: I I absolutely agree with Scott, and I would I would throw two additional. Uh, gaps in there for us to think about as well. Uh, You know, the first is, in this paper, we've been able to lay out recommendations for how we might influence or encourage individuals to adopt protective behaviors. And I think one of the gaps that we don't know is whether those recommendations will be successful. And so I think a next step is conducting intervention studies to see if one or several of these recommendations, these strategies, are effective. In promoting protective behavior, if we do see um, greater adoption of protective behavior and corresponding decreases in poisoning. I think the other gap that's still out there is um, the other scenarios of poisoning that, that we haven't examined and that other folks pay little attention to. One of the first steps in this overall project was to conduct a review of, of all the evidence that was out there on carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and through that process, we really identified five different poisoning scenarios. Uh, There's the residential poisonings that we talk about in this paper. There's the the storm-related poisonings with generators that Scott's also talked about. But then there's poisonings that typically occur outside of the home from motor vehicles, occupational poisonings, and recreational poisonings from boats, camping, and other places like that. And, and, you know, I think those latter three scenarios um, are ones that do not get a lot of attention, and and yet, obviously, folks um, still die and are injured by those. And so I think that's an area that deserves attention, too. So we probably have a lot to to keep us busy over the next uh, next several decades.
0: Sounds like job security for you both.
1: <laughs> I think so.
0: As you, uh, as you get some results, you'll share them with us through injury prevention. That was uh, Doug Rupert and Scott Damon discussing their paper in the April 2013 issue of injury prevention. It's called Risk and Protective Behaviors for Residential Carbon Monoxide Poisoning. The paper is this month's Editor's Choice. It's freely available at the journal's website. And that's all for this edition of our podcast. Please join us in June for highlights of the next issue. In the meantime, I'd like to encourage you to visit our blog. For news, opinion, comment, and discussion, follow the link from the journal's homepage or find us at blogs.bmj.com.
2: For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.